And here we go, everybody. Another edition of Jamal About Sports coming to you on a Wednesday, May 16th, 2018. Kicking off the show, Howard Jones with Pearl in the Shell. As always, I'm your host, Jamal Hayden. We've got a big show to get to today. We've got Major League Baseball, including the Mets, latest trials and tribulations. We'll also take you around the league and we'll do a spotlight as we do every week on a somewhat unknown player who's so far having an outstanding year. Um, We will talk about the NBA playoffs as well as the spectacle and sideshow ridiculousness that was the NBA lottery uh, televised airing last night on ESPN, as usual, ESPN destroying uh, a production. And uh, I'll give you my take on the Supreme Court's decision to allow the states to legalize gambling, as well as the Matt Patricia uh, situation in Detroit. But we start with the Mets. And uh, look, the Mets, since they're rollicking 11-1 or 12-2 start, uh, have been a bad team. They are now, let's see... What are they? 20, 20 and 18. So they, you know, advanced math tells me if you want to do 12 and 2, they are uh, 8 and 16 in their last 24 games. Obviously not good. Um, been a number of reasons for that. Jason Vargas coming back into the rotation was supposed to be a help. He's 0 and 3 with a 13 ERA. Uh, the Mets' uh, offense has gone uh, cold. Really, nobody is hitting other than his Drupal Cabrera. Um, you know, look, they had a nice laugher last night against a terrible starting pitcher in Jamie Garcia for for the Blue Jays, uh, and then added on some runs against uh, you know the underbelly of that Blue Jays bullpen. So you know, nice that they got a laugher. Uh, you know, they had a laugher two weeks ago in San Diego too on a Sunday, and then pretty much in between, it's been a disaster. The Mets have scored like two or fewer runs in, in, in a ton of games. So, look, the, I, I've said this all season. Uh, this is a poorly constructed lineup, typical Sandy Alderson, no imagination, no creativity. Let's just get names and put them together and, and, and hope that it works out. So, you know, but look, I, I, I'm done criticizing Sandy Alderson for the offseason moves because it, there, there's no use to it, right? The season's now, what, about a quarter of the way in? So, look, the guys that I wanted him and most Met fans, I think, wanted him to sign are not here. The guys, you got to go with, go forward with the guys that you have here, and, and, and you just got to hope if you're a Mets fan. You have to hope that everything clicks because that's the Mets' philosophy, Let's hope. Let's hope everything goes right. Let's never plan for the worst-case scenario. Let's just always cross our fingers and hope that everything comes together. Just like in 2015, when they went on that little magic carpet ride down the stretch, when they were about to trade for Carlos Gomez, and then at the you know last minute they pulled out of the deal, thankfully, maybe the one time the Mets medical team <laughs> actually helped them, uh, because they didn't like, uh, you know, a, a hip injury that showed up on uh, Carlos Gomez's medicals. And then that forced Sandy to go to plan B, which was Cespedes. But, of course, Cespedes always along should have been plan A. But it's the Sandy Alderson, ladies and gentlemen. 
one of the worst general managers the Mets have ever had. I mean, all you need to do is look at the dearth of talent that exists in the Mets AAA system. Not, oh, sorry, not AAA system, although you could look at AAA, but the entire minor league system. And you can see he's done a very poor job. And I know it's not just him. There's other guys in the front office, J.P. Ricciardi, John Ricco. Okay, whatever. The entire Mets front office has been lousy, lousy. So, look, that's not the point. The point is you hope that the starting pitching will pitch to its potential and carry this team, and they'll get enough hitting to keep them at least relevant and in, and in, and in the mix for the summer. Right? As a Mets fan right now, I think you'd sign up for – by the trade deadline, they're within three to four games of the second or and or first wild card, right? Forget about the division. The Mets aren't winning the division. So uh, there's two, you know, the Nationals are a better team. The Braves are a better team. Uh, I, I still don't think the Phillies can sustain this pace. We'll see. Um, but the Braves are better by a lot. Particularly position player wise, the Braves lineup is much better than the Mets, and as is the Nationals. And look, the Nationals seemingly should be getting Daniel Murphy back at some point. Um, although uh, Adam Eaton is out again for them now for the rest of the year. But look, the Nationals are a well-run team. I mean, just look, they put Zimmerman on the DL. They called up Mark Reynolds, who nobody wanted for some reason in the offseason. You know, a guy who started out like a house of fire a bunch of years ago, was a all-or-nothing 200-hitter, 35-home run guy, kind of re, re-found himself, became less of a strikeout guy, a little bit more contact, played in Colorado, still had a lot of power. So I think, you know, teams tend to dismiss that. He came so nobody wanted him. The Nationals gave him a minor league deal. Zimmerman just went on the DL. They called him up. He hit two home runs in his first game. Matt Adams, who the Mets thought about getting to be a, a potential, you know, outfield first base type, right? The Nationals signed. The Mets signed Jay Bruce and said, because, well, oh, well, we already had Jay Bruce. Again, I'm on record. I like Jay Bruce. Good guy. Good player. It, it was a lazy move. It was a classic Sandy Olerson lazy move. And Matt Adams is absolutely killing it for the Nationals. I think he has 12 home runs, and Jay Bruce has three. Now, again, it's a long season. I get it. But my point is the Nationals are a much better run team than the Mets. So, you know, they're going to be fine. They, my point is because the Nationals are a bet, much better run team than the Mets, they can sustain some hits and some injuries much better than the Mets. I mean, the Mets have one injury. Forget it. The, 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 whole, the sky falls. I mean, that's it. The, the season's over. They get one injury, you know, Cespedes misses a significant period of time, they're done. And if DeGrom or Syndergaard misses a significant period of time, they're done. That's it. Fold your tent, pack up, and let's go home. Woe is me, that's it, season over. We saw it last year. So the Nationals, after a very slow start, are now 24-18. and Because they have the roster and the players to be able to sustain some, some hits to their roster. The Mets do not. 
Mets need everything to go right. They need every break. They need everybody to stay healthy, and they need everybody to perform at least at or above their career norms, their career numbers. And speaking of Cespedes, the Mets, I mean, the Mets hilariously, frustratingly, infuriatingly, never, ever learn from their mistakes. And we're seeing it again with the Cespedes situation, right? He's been limping around on one leg for a week. They had ample opportunity to either sit him out because there was rainouts, there's off days. You could have probably given him a full week off without having to DL him. Mets opted not to do that. Now, they gave him last night's game off after an off day on Monday. He got an MRI. Supposedly, it's a a, a mild hip strain. But now they're debating whether or not to DL him or to let him rest. I mean, again... (laughs) Did you not learn? Obviously, they didn't learn their lesson from last year, which was they had the opportunity to DL him. They didn't when he had the hamstring injury, and he ripped it up, and then he was pretty much done for a significant period of time. I mean, look, leg injuries are tricky, okay? And I understand he went through great lengths to supposedly try to remedy this stuff. Hasn't worked. So just put him on the DL... Right? Call somebody up from the minors just to fill a roster spot. Nobody's going to play. And you're going to play Nimmo and Ligaris and Conforto and Bruce in the outfield for the next 10 days that he's on the DL, whatever it is. The Mets don't have another outfielder on the 40-man roster, yet another indictment of the horrendous job that this front office has done trying to acquire talent. Drafting and developing talent. Mets, no, I don't know there's an organization in baseball that's done a worse job since Alderson's been here. So the Mets don't have anybody in the 40-man roster who's an outfielder at AAA. They'd have to make a spot if they wanted to call up, say, a Matt Dendecker. But, you know, he would just be a body. No offense to him. Nice kid, good fielder, but not much of a hitter. So, uh, you know, call up whomever. Philip Evans or somebody like that, and you know he could play a little outfield, I guess, in a pinch, and just be done with it. But the Mets never learn their lesson ever, and they're like, "Oh, this time is different." Really? This time's different, huh? Okay. Look, you shouldn't even play the game Sunday in Philly. Yeah, I understand he hit a home run. Mets lost the game anyway. You know, because the manager has to pull Jacob DeGrom out after one inning because he threw 45 pitches. And Mickey Calloway knows that if you throw 45 pitches in an inning, you're compromised. Okay, give me a specific example, Mick. Point to me one player, one pitcher where that happened, where it was especially the first inning. He didn't give up a run. He's your ace. See, when I was growing up, when you watch baseball... Aces would struggle in the first inning. But if you didn't get them early, chances are, chances were, they'd settle in and give you a good start. But those days, I guess, are over. I mean, can you imagine Randy Johnson coming out of a game after the first inning where he didn't give up a run, regardless of how many pitches he threw? Or dare I say, I mean, look, I can't stand the guy, but I mean, Clemens was a hell of a competitor. Roger Clemens. 
So, but of course, dumb group thinks that's it. Oh, well, Mickey Calloway said it, so it must be true. Nobody, none of, none of the New York media questioned it. Oh, of course, that's the right move. Of course. Really? Why? Based on what? Give me a specific example. It's ridiculous. Talk about non-competitive. Hey, Mickey, instead of being concerned about your precious pitch counts, how about you actually try competing in a game? You pull your pitcher out after one inning, and he doesn't give up any runs. Ridiculous. And DeGrom was not too pleased, but, you know, what's he going to do? He's a nice guy. He's pretty laid back. He's, you know, he didn't, he, he made his, his, his point. He, he didn't throw a fit. Good for him. I would have. I would have been furious. I mean, who's to say he doesn't come back in the second inning and throw 10 pitches and in the third inning throw 15 pitches? So now, okay, it's three innings, 60 pitches. And maybe he can get you four or five innings. And guess what? Now, now you don't have to try to use Paul Seawald for two innings. And then he neglected, Callaway did, to bring in Jerry Blevins, whose only point, the only reason he's on a team is to pitch the left-handed hitters. That's it. And I understand he hasn't been good at it this year. He's been bad so far. But you either trust him or you don't. If you're not going to bring Jerry Blevins in to pitch, face a pinch hitter, by the way, Nick Williams, who's barely a major league player, okay? if you're not going to bring Jerry Blevins, if you don't trust Jerry Blevins enough to face a pinch hitter who's a left-handed hitter late in a game, in a close game, or with a lead, then get him out. Then there's no reason for him to be on the team. None. And he had him warming up in the bullpen and neglected to bring him in. Look, you, you done with Jerry Blevins? Fine. That's fine. Get him off the team then. You either have him here for that situation or you don't. Not a good week for Mickey Cowley. Plus, of course, the whole lineup card fiasco. Bat, the Mets batted out of order like a Little League team last week. What a joke. Look, I want to like Mickey Calloway. Seems like a nice enough guy. Look, part of this is uh, I just don't like the direction baseball's headed in. I've said it a million times. Oh, and by the way, all the, all the proponents out there batting your best player second, how's that working out for the Mets? They can't score a damn run. And as of last night, Mets cleanup hitters, a combined 190 batting average, one home run, 16 RBIs. You know why? Because you're batting your cleanup hitter second. You have one on your team, you just bat him second. Because that's what everybody else is doing. <laughs> I mean, look, you want to make the case that that's how base, that's the direction baseball is headed in? If it works, great. It's not working. Conforto has been a disaster in the leadoff spot. Cespedes has been okay hitting second. Whomever the Mets have hit fourth has been awful. It's not working. I mean, gee, I don't know. How about this for a crazy idea? How about you build a balanced lineup? 
So the top of your order has a little speed and guys who get on base, and the middle of your order are guys that drive in runs. No? You can't have that, huh? That, that doesn't exist anymore, apparently. Because that's not what everybody else is doing. I, I mean, look, I, I hate to sound like that guy. I know I'm all get off your lawn and all that, but it is not fun to watch. Pitchers getting pulled after, you know, 50 pitches, 60 pitches. They don't get they don't let them get through. You have to face the order the third time around because the numbers indicate that, you know, that's when guys really have a drop off. I mean, starting pitchers are starters in name only now. I mean, so little is asked of these guys and required. And so if, if the argument is, well, these guys get, get paid big money and you have to protect your investment, at what point then, though, does the payment not become commensurate with what they're giving you? Because if now all starting pitchers are all going to give you five and six innings, why am I going to pay big money for that? I'm going to start giving, we're going we're to start going back to having long men. The Mets have two of them right now, actually, sort of as a happy accident with Gesellman and, and Seth Lugo, former starters who are in the bullpen. You know, Lugo gave him three innings last night. Granted, it was a blowout. But those guys are going to start making more money because those guys can give you multiple appearances throughout the course of a week. I mean, if that's where we're headed, if we're going to ask so little now of starting pitchers, then those long men, they're going to come back into vogue that we used to see in the 70s and the 80s and sometimes in the, in, in the early 90s. I mean, wouldn't you rather pay a guy that you can pitch two to three times a week, two innings or more perhaps, at any given time, if he's really good, than a starting pitcher who gives you six innings and, and three runs at a max? I mean, look, I don't care about really how stuff goes down if the game is fun to watch. It's not fun to watch. I talked about this last year. There are three outcomes now, basically. A walk, strikeout, or home run. For the most part. Not every game. I get it. But you know what? Strikeouts, there were more strikeouts in the month of April cumulatively throughout the sport than there were base hits. What does that tell you? You know, nobody knows how to bunt anymore. Nobody knows how to move a runner anymore. You know, a guy gets a sack fly, you fall off your chair. That used to be a given. Get a runner in from less from third base with less than two outs. Used to be the league average used to be used to be, I believe, about eighty percent. Now it's like sixty. It's ridiculous because nobody knows how to situationally hit anymore. Because everything's about launch angle, which you would think, by the way, in that scenario, that's when you would want to try to hit the ball in the air. But apparently, nobody can do that, or they can't do it. Deep, get the ball out in the outfield deep enough to get a runner home from third. It's not a very, it's not, the, the current brand of baseball being played throughout the sport is not uh, aesthetically pleasing. Speaking of which, so we'll get off the Mets now and get off my soapbox. <laughs> we'll move it on. Two, uh, I wanted to spotlight the closer for the Seattle Mariners. By the way, before we get to him, um, the whole Robinson Cano thing just got whacked for uh, PEDs, uh, 80 games, 
means he's also not po- eligible for the postseason based on uh, the rules. Um, it was a diuretic. It's largely believed that's a masking agent. Uh, he uh, elected not to appeal. So that um, kind of tells you all you need to know. Um, but there's now in the New York papers and the Yankees themselves, there's now this I told you so. Oh, we, we, we kind of suspected that Cano was a PED guy. That's why we didn't sign him to a big long-term contract. I mean, really? How classless. You know, guess what? He's not your problem anymore. How about a no comment? No, 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 no. We're the Yankees. And we have to be the smartest organization in baseball and be able to say, I see, I told you so. Oh, yeah. That's why we didn't want to sign Robinson Cano. And by the way, shame on you, Joel Sherman and, and, and John Harper. You don't need to do the Yankees bidding for them. You don't need to carry their water. And by the way, those guys are two highly respected baseball writers, and I enjoy their columns often. But, I mean, come on, guys. You're better than that. Really? You guys need to, to write these, 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 these hatchet job articles now on Cano saying that the Yankees probably suspected something and that's why they didn't. The reason they didn't resign them is they were smart. Now, they compounded it or they negated their, 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 their smart decision by giving Ellsbury the ridiculous contract. But the, Mariner, the contract the Mariners gave Cano is absurd. Ten years, 200 and whatever, 300 million, whatever the hell it was, $270 million, ridiculous. First of all, no player should get a 10-year contract ever. I don't care if the kid's 18. Uh, and you know, you, you knew they were going to, he was going to be playing late into his thirties on that deal. It was going to be a bad deal. So the Yankees were right in not matching that deal. I have no issues with that. But again, they sort of negated it by giving Ellsbury ridiculous, what, seven years, $160 million contract. One of the worst ever the guys giving them nothing. He's hurt all the time. And when he does play, he doesn't do anything. But anyway, I just thought that was very classless and unnecessary of the Yankees and John Harper and Joel Sherman to pile on like that. All right. So what in the spotlight, a guy that doesn't get a lot of pub nationally, um, plays out there uh, in the Pacific Northwest. Edwin Diaz is the closer for the National, uh, for the Nationals, for the Mariners. He's got 14 saves in 21 and a third innings, only seven hits. Nine walks, so the whip is .75, outstanding. And in those 21 innings, he's got 38 strikeouts. He's averaging 16 strikeouts per nine innings. Now, I understand strikeouts are somewhat inflated these days because everybody strikes out. But you're looking for a lockdown closer, that is one right there. And he's 24 years old. So uh, this is a guy, again, doesn't get a whole lot of publicity because he plays out there in Seattle. But Edwin Diaz is having an outstanding year for the Mariners, which, by the way, is a big reason why they are, I believe, 24-17 and 17 and off to a nice start. Now, we'll see what happens with the loss of Cano. He was off to a good start. Uh, I think they're actually going to be okay. They're going to move D. Gordon back to second base from center field. And I told you, that lineup is pretty good. That Mariners lineup is good. I mean, even taking Cano out of the mix... You've still got D. Gordon. You've still got Hanniger. You've still got Seeger. You've still got Nelly Cruz. Uh, you've still got Gene Segura. I mean, look, Gordon's hitting 317. 
Segura's hitting 316. Hanniger's hitting 295. He's got 10 bombs. Uh, Ryan Healy is playing first for them. Eight homers, 20 ribbies. You know, Nelly Cruz has been hurt. The average is not what you want. 240, but he's got seven home runs, 18 RBIs. Seager's 7-27. and 27. I mean, it's a pretty good lineup. It's not bad. The whole thing with the Mariners is going to get their pitching straightened out. Their starting pitching in particular. Obviously, we just told you they got a great closer. But, you know, they need King Felix to, to get it together. I mean, I, we, we know Paxton had the no-hitter last week. That's the other thing you're seeing, by the way. There have been a preponderance of sort of middling pitchers taking no-hit bids into the 6th, 7th, and 8th innings so far already this year. You know, Jeremy Hellickson, who's like a soft-tossing righty, think like a poor man's Greg Maddox, you know, is off to a great start. And I'm, I think maybe it's because you're seeing a lot of these kind of soft-toss guys, righties and lefties, have success early so far this year. Because I think, you know, over the last 10 years, so many guys throw 95, everybody hits 95 now. It's not a big deal anymore. It used to be a big deal. 95 miles an hour is nothing, even 97 so, I think, you know, you get one of these guys that messes with guys' timing. Guy could locate, hit the corners, change speeds. I mean, I, I've watched the Mets go through it a bunch of times this year against guys that you're like, this guy's no stuff. Why can't they hit him? I think that's probably why. All right, we'll take a short break. We'll be back with some NBA. Right after this. And we are back here on Jamal About Sports. Take a little trip through the NBA. So first, uh, let's get, I guess we'll get to the playoff games first. So Cleveland now, after last night's game, finds themselves down 0-2 to the Celtics. Um, you know, after a, a hideous game one in which they got blown out and was never, never close. Uh, they came out firing last night. LeBron in particular uh, certainly expected um, he was a man possessed early in that game. They had, I think, what, a seven-point lead at halftime. Um, you know, he had the collision with Tatum. Didn't look to kind of be the same. He certainly wasn't as aggressive taking the ball to the hole after. You know, Twitter was all ablaze about, oh, if this was the NFL, everybody would be going crazy. He has a concussion. Listen, I, yeah, who knows? He says he was fine. You know, who knows? To draw the parallel between the NBA and the NFL it's such a dumb false equivalency. I saw that dope Danny Cannell have one of his little Twitter things. Oh, people would be going crazy at the end of it because he's one of these concussion deniers. He doesn't think concussions are a thing. So, um, you know, he's like, why isn't everybody up in arms? Well, here's why, Danny, because concussions, the NBA doesn't have a history of guys dying young from C- from ALS and all kinds of other horrendous diseases and getting dementia in their 50s like the NFL does, you dope. That's why. They're completely different things. Context, genius. You know, I love these guys that, that, that you know, Choose, you know, football is his sport, right? Because he played quarterback at Florida State and then was a terrible NFL quarterback. So that's his that's his baby. So you have to tear down other sports then to prop up your sport. Is that the thing there, Danny? It's ridiculous. It's a completely separate argument. They're not the same. 
The NBA doesn't have a, a, a gross history of denying head injuries and not dealing with them properly the way the NFL does. That's why people aren't up in arms about LeBron James getting an elbow to the face last night or a shoulder to the face. Anyway, I digress. Can you tell I'm a little ornery this morning? I'm a little fired up. Um, so now Cleveland finds themselves down 0-2. I mean, LeBron, of course, by the way, you know, transcendent performance again last night in defeat. What is it, 42 points, 12 assists, 10 rebounds, you know, another triple-double. Uh, didn't shoot well from the line, 5 for 10, but he was 16, I think, for 29 from the field. Tried his best. Look, he only had two other guys help him out. Corver had a decent game, at, with, but only 11 points, and I think they were all in the first half. And um, Kevin Love had a, a decent game with 21, but, you know, he was kind of non-existent in the fourth quarter. And he didn't really get much else from anybody else. George Hill gave him nothing. J.R. Smith gave him literally nothing. Didn't score a point, I believe. Tristan Thompson was eh. So, look, the Celtics are a better team 1 through 8 or 1 through 10 or whatever you want to say than the, the Cavaliers are. This is the Cavaliers have the best player on the planet. I mean, you take LeBron James off that, that, Cla- that Cleveland roster, it's, they're the Knicks. It's a 25-win team. They're terrible. They might not even win that many games without him. So, you know, I, I mean, this idea that this is some kind of an upset, uh, no. Celtics had a better record in the regular season. They have home court in this, in this series. And enough with they, they're missing their two best players. First of all, Gordon Hayward's a nice player. Let's relax with this. He's some superstar, okay? In a nice couple of years in Utah, I'm sorry, I, he's got a bunch of rings on his finger. It's a nice player. Let's not go crazy about Gordon Hayward. And by the way, he didn't play the whole season for the Celtics. So them missing Gordon Hayward, they didn't, and they're not missing him at all. They won however many games they won without him anyway. He got hurt in the first quarter of the first game of the year. Yes, they don't have Kyrie Irving, but as I've been saying now for three weeks or a month or even longer, Terry Rozier is playing almost as well as Kyrie Irving and in some games plays better. And he's a better defender than Kyrie Irving could ever dream to be. Because he actually tries on that end of the floor. So... Um, you know, let's let's relax with the, the, the Celtics and this nice little engine that could. And, oh, they're so young. Well, I'm sorry. Jason Tatum was the third pick in the draft. He's supposed to be good. Jalen Brown was a lottery pick. He's supposed to be good. So this, the, the, the Celtics, this, 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 this false narrative that they're, ooh, the nice little Celtics, little underdog Celtics. No, 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 no. Celtics are clearly the favorite in this series. They did what they're supposed to do. They defended home court. But they're the better team. LeBron's the best player. They are the better team. I suspect Cleveland will win at least two games at home. Those fringe players, as we say all the time, the fringe players, the role players, the supplementary players always tend to play better at home in the playoffs than they do on the road. So you'll see guys like maybe a Jordan Clarkson or a Rodney Hood have a better game and contribute more. J.R. Smith. So that LeBron doesn't have to do everything by himself. And the converse, of course, to that is that the role players for the Celtics who play great at home will probably not play as well on the road. That's generally how it goes. 
So, you know, the Baineses of the world, a big hack center for the Celtics, you know, and Ojale and some of these other guys, and they probably won't play as well on the road in Cleveland. I, I, I expected this series to go seven. I still do. I think the Celtics in seven, they'll get it done on their home court. And then the LeBron watch will be on. Which brings us to, I'm not even going to talk about Houston, Golden State. I, I, I can't stand either of those two teams. I watched some of the first game. Um, you know, I watched Harden do his thing. He played great. Paul played great. They didn't get much else from anybody else. And, you know, look, Durant, Thompson, Curry all had really good games. That happens. You have no shot. It's that simple. So I know everybody's writing Houston off pretty much already. Um, we'll see. We'll see if they make if they make adjustments. You know, you got to try to take away one of those guys. You cannot let all three of those. And I'm not even including Draymond Green, who's a nice player. But if all three of those guys are going to go for 20 or more, you're not winning. So you have to figure out a way to take away one of those guys. I'm not saying it's easy. They're all really good. But you have to find a way. But as far as Cleveland's concerned and the LeBron watch, that'll bring us to the lottery, which, by the way, I, I've never seen a more ridiculous presentation of something. Somehow ESPN managed to draw something that should last about 10 minutes out into an hour, right? To see, you know, where the ping pong balls land and who's going to get who and what pick. And so, look, the Knicks, based on their record, were slotted ninth. That's where they. That's what they're picking. They're ninth. And of course, you know, it is interesting that the only time the Knicks ever moved up in the process from where they were slotted to be was the year they got Ewing, which was 33 years ago. <laughs> Every other time, they've either stayed the same or dropped down. Now. Two years ago or three years ago, they were, you know, they were, I guess, second and went to fourth. And everybody, you know, the initial reaction was, oh, woe is me. Oh, the Knicks never get any break. Well, that's when they got Porzingis. And the two guys that went ahead of them, uh, Jilo Okafor, the center from Duke, and D'Angelo Russell, the guard from Ohio State, are both busts and now already on their second teams, both on the Nets, by the way. Um... So let's everybody, you know, cool it with, oh, the poor Knicks again. They have to pick ninth. Look, as I've been saying for a while, just look no further than Donovan Mitchell, who was the 13th pick. There are good players to be had. You just have to have front smart office to get those good players. That's all. Now, the jury is still very much out on this Knicks brain trust, right? I mean, Steve Mills somehow, like we talked about last week, he's been here forever, have no idea how. He's been part of all of this losing. I mean, I get it. He looks good in his suit. He went to Princeton. He's probably, you know, he's a, he sounds smart. Uh, he's done a horrible job since he's been here. I mean, there's no other way to put it. I mean, look at the record. Awful. And Scott Perry, the new GM, you know, look, he's got very much a mixed bag on his resume prior to coming in the Knicks. He had some good, some bad. You know, he's been fired from a job. You know, I, I, I don't think anybody thinks he's, he's this great, you know, young mind. Uh, yeah, drafted Victor Oladipo. Okay, but he also traded Victor Oladipo. You know, had some success as an assistant on the Dumars with the Pistons. Um, 
you know, a couple of questionable moves in Sacramento, a couple of question moves in Orlando. I mean, you know, jury's still very much out on Scott Perry. So, you know, we'll see what this and, – and look, Nilakina is on Phil Jackson, right? And that's also basically – so it's on Dolan, right? I mean, Nilakina should have never been the pick. Should have been Mitchell. We know this. But there are plenty of good players in this draft. There are plenty of good players in every draft. You just have to, you know, you, you just have to be smart and identify them and figure out if they fit what you want to do, what kind of kid they are. It's just like the NFL. Same thing. Right? But remember, three years ago, everybody knew, oh, no, there's only like five really good players in this draft, and Okafor and D'Angelo Russell are two of them, except they both stink. Except, sorry, neither of them are any good. They've already been deemed busts by their original teams that drafted them. And look, they're both young enough that they might turn into decent NBA players. But my point is, one guy was the second pick and one guy was, I think, the first or the third pick. And neither of them have done anything so far, except get traded because their original teams didn't like them anymore. So, again, this idea, you know, and you're going to read all these articles now. Well, you know, this guy can't miss. And this guy, you know, I'm already seeing Mikel Bridges, the guy from, from Villanova, right? Well, you know, he's a three, he's a redshirt junior, so he's more mature than some of these other guys. But, you know, his upside is limited. His upside is limited because he's already 22, as if that's old. Right? But, but, but you know, Trey Young has a world of upside. By the way, I, I, I will tell you right now, Trey Young will be out of the NBA in three years. Out of the NBA in three years. Talk about hype. Yikes. So anyway, so of course that's probably who the Knicks will draft. But the Knicks need a small forward in the worst way. There's a couple of them. Mikel Bridges from Villanova's one. Miles Bridges from Michigan State's one. The Porter kid from Missouri could fall to them. You know, he was supposed to be, you know, one of the best players uh, coming out. He missed most of his freshman year. You know, he was a one-and-done guy. He barely played this year because he was hurt. Knicks will have options. It's not a death sentence to have the ninth pick in the draft. Just got to find the right player. All right. Another short break, and then we'll be back. Finish it up right after this. Okay, and we are back for the last segment here on Jamal About Sports. First, the uh, Supreme Court situation with gambling. So now states have the, uh, it's up to the states themselves to decide whether or not um, they can legalize sports betting. So this, of course, is going to create an enormous amount of revenue. Uh, Mark Cuban came out the other day and look, take it with a grain of salt. He's a pro. He owns the Mavericks, but he basically said anybody who owns a pro sports team basically just doubled in value. It's probably right. Um, and you know, eventually though, this is going to probably trickle to college as well. And uh, as if they don't make enough money already, you know, it'll be interesting to see what that that impact means for. Uh, the quote-unquote student-athletes. Um, but look, this, this is, I mean, there's just, you, you're, gonna, you're going to now grow your fan base 
by enormous amounts because people who ordinarily otherwise wouldn't care about a sporting event now that they can bet on them and you're going to have see all you know through technology and smartphones you're going to see probably in-game betting i mean you know obviously there's a lot of details here to be ironed out but the entire sports landscape as we know it is is going to be changed and it'll also be interesting to see how they kind of regulate this what kind of revenue it generates but also you know how you, how do you regulate and and guard against you know nefarious activities um you know th- this could really be opening up a, a massive pandora's box here um and it will be interesting to see uh if in like 10 years or even five there's a, a massive uptick in uh in gambling addictions you know because i i suspect look people who are hardcore gamblers already gamble anyway let's let's be honest right they do it at least quote unquote illegally but they do it or they do offshore accounts or whatever it is they have a bookie i mean there's plenty plenty of gambling going on i think what this may do though is the person that maybe felt like either uh a stigma because it's technically not legal or they felt like oh it's too much work too much effort i mean now if you can just go you know gamble legally from your phone you know it's kind of like those 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 you know fantasy you know the what is draft kings and stuff like that that then i think got shut down or whatever but it'll be similar to that i mean if you can just go place a bet on your phone for 25 bucks or 100 bucks or whatever it is you want you know while you're watching the game or that will now make you want to go watch the game. It'll be interesting. And then finally, the whole Matt Patricia situation with the with the Lions. Uh, you know, new, newly named coach of the Lions. Um, story came out in the Detroit News last week that when he was 21 years old and on spring break, he and another person, another guy, um, were accused of sexual assault. Um, they were indicted by a grand jury. The... Um, the accuser elected not to move forward or testify or prosecute any further. So the case was dropped. So there was never any trial. So, you know, there wasn't even a question of being found innocent because there was no trial. Uh, the matter was dropped. Um, he maintains, vehemently maintains his innocence. He says he was innocent then. He's innocent now. It was false accusations. Um, now, you know, the lines look bad here because they didn't know about this. They did a routine background check, which wouldn't reveal something like this because routine background checks, I know somebody works in that industry to a certain extent, they only look for criminal records, any felonies and the like, DUIs, things like that, that would be on somebody's record. Something like that wouldn't be in a database unless you looked specifically for that. And the Patriots claim they never knew about this either. And he, Patricia claims it never came up in any of the interviews that he's done, whether it was, as he said, in, for an engineering job, because that's what he did before he was a football coach, or for any the football positions he's interviewed for. And so he didn't feel a need to disclose it to the Lions um, because it had never been an issue, and it was 22 years ago. So, you know, look, this is the world we live in now. Um, I, I find it curious See, to me, what's the point of, of, of printing this article? And look, I have no loyalty to Matt Patricia. 
My loyalty is to what's right. So if he did something wrong and it's proven and the accuser decides to come forward at some point again and it's proven that he did something wrong, get him out. Goodbye. You're fired. Fine. No issue with that whatsoever. But short of that, what's the point other than clickbait to even run with this article? What's the point? You helping the accuser in any way? The accuser didn't go to the paper and say, hey, this guy's a monster. I want to tell my side of the story. No, that's not what happened here. The sole purpose for running this article is to get clicks. That's it. And that is the problem that we have in today's society. That's the problem with our media. Everything is based on views and clicks and likes and retweets and everything else. Because, you know, a free press is supposed to serve the greater good, the common good, the public, and or inform and or entertain. I don't see how printing this article, running with this article, does any of those things. And again, I'm not saying sweep it under the rug. If Matt Patricia is found to have been guilty of something, he should suffer the consequences. No question about it. That's not my point. My point is, again, I don't understand how does running with this article help the victim? Or sorry, no, there isn't, you know, not the victim, the accuser. She's not a victim yet because there's been nothing has been proven. But the alleged victim or the accuser, how does it help her? I don't see how it helps the public to know this about Patricia. Again, if she decides to come forward at some point, whole, whole new game. Had she gone to the papers and said, guys, I need to tell my side of the story because your, your, your football team just hired a monster, in her opinion? Fine. But this is not that. So look, it's a very delicate issue. I understand that. right? We see oftentimes women have you know neglected to come forward or, or prosecute because it's often they're treated horribly during the process. But we've also seen false accusations happen too. So that doesn't mean he's innocent, doesn't mean he's guilty. We don't we just don't know. The only people who know are the woman and him. And maybe his his friend that was with him. That's it. You know look look at the Reuben Foster thing. Everybody was quick to judge and now his, his girlfriend is, is apparently going to testify to cops and say that she lied to them because she was mad at him. Now, again, who knows if that's even true, right? I mean, that's the thing. You have really no way of knowing this stuff. But everybody was ready to, to have Reuben Foster caught and out of football because he supposedly beat up his girlfriend. And if, that's, and if that was, if that did happen, I was all for that. But now she's about to say, no, I lied. I was mad at him. I mean, it's a very tricky situation here. So that could be true. It could also be true that, you know, he offered to give her money on the side to shut her up so that he could continue to play football and his career wouldn't be over. That also could have been, I mean, that's what I'm saying. We all, no one knows.
I mean, look, have men been getting away with a lot of crap for far too long in this country? No question. But, you know, unfortunately, in today's society, we are so quick to judge and to paint everybody with the same brush when really you don't know anything. It's really, you know, these are very tricky and delicate matters. Like I said, Matt Patricia is found guilty of anything. Let him be punished to the full extent of the law. He don't need to be the coach of the Detroit Lions anymore. Go get me somebody that doesn't abuse women. Fine. But it doesn't appear that that's going to be the case, right? Still, the 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 the, uh, the accuser in this scenario has not said one. We've not heard anything. So, I guess the bottom line is what I'm saying is you just have to keep an open mind before we rush to judgment. I mean, that's the, I understand that's what we do now in today's society. I get it. Social media. First, mo- first thought that pops into one's head, jump on social media and share it with the rest of the world. Look, I'm, I, I'm guilty of it. I did it when, when the Lions drafted Frank Ragnow. I, I, I said this is a terrible pick because it wasn't what I was expecting, and there are other players on the board that I wanted them to draft. It was hasty. It was dumb on my part. I'll admit it. Then I went back and I thought about it, but that was my visceral reaction. But, you know, that's about a minor thing, right? It's about a draft pick. Who cares? the end of the day it's not a big deal but in these you know these serious matters everyone does the same thing everybody rushes to judgment right away you had the you know he's the worst he should be fired camp and then you had this is ridiculous you know why are we even talking about this camp and again i'm all for exposing wrong i'm all for bringing these things to light in this specific instance i don't really see what the point of running with this story was or printing this story was other than to get views and clicks. And that ultimately is the problem with today's media. All right, that'll do it for today's show. As always, thanks for listening. Check me out on SoundCloud, iTunes, on Twitter, at JamalAboutSport. And look for my upcoming new Facebook page, also JamalAboutSports. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the sports. We'll be back next week with another show. Until then, peace out.